You're listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast. Here's the deal. If you make disciples by sitting around and talking, you shouldn't be surprised when your disciples sit around and talk and talk and talk. This is the podcast for those weary of just talking and ready to start activating in the mission Jesus gave us to change the world. The Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast, where disciples and disciple makers gather to grow and go together. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Hey, y'all. Great to have you with us today. Remember now, the place for a man, for a woman, completing all their powers is in a spiritual fight. And right now, even today, making disciples of the nations. So stay tuned, stay encouraged. We've got a rendezvous with destiny. All right, folks, on the dock of the day, I'd like to talk about, get in just a few moments, talk about making disciples and what the book of Genesis, uh, the first book of Torah, the first book of the law, the first book of the Bible, what Genesis tells us uh, that might help us, might inform us, might better equip us to make disciples in the church and beyond the church even today. Before we get to that, however, I want to make sure that we're covering a couple of issues like we always do on this program. We, we It's just kind of fun for me. I'm an old talk show host, so I like to talk issues on programs, and so we're going to do a, a little bit of that, and then, of course, uh, we just have a little word from a sponsor today. I saw a fascinating uh, article the other day in Christianity Today, and it talked about that sending your kids to church, taking them with you to church, more uh, to the point, it matters than, than, than sending them to the right school. Now, to me, that's interesting because they're going to always spend more time in school. But there's a study out there that suggests that getting your kids to church matters more than even the schooling that they have as a regular diet. So there was a public health expert named Tyler Vanderweel who co-authored a, a Christianity Today article a couple of uh, a couple of issues ago. But one of the things he wanted to know is, uh, let's put together four schooling categories. We're going to talk about public school, private school, religious school, and yes, homeschool. And try to figure out, of these, what's the good option? What's the better option? So Vanderweel and his team at Harvard, Harvard no less, examined a large swath of data uh, that's been collected for more than a decade. And I love these kinds of studies. It's not just saying, hey, let's look to see what happened in the last six weeks. But here it's, no, let's look to see over a long period of time what has happened. So he tracked the development of 12,000 nurses' children in their young adulthood. And there was a, so you would call this a longitudinal study. Surveyed social, physical, mental health trends across the group. Uh, things like substance abuse and uh, who's suffering from anxiety and depression and community engagement and, and sexual activity. So when they compared the key health indicators, researchers actually found very little difference in the long-term well-being of adolescents who tended public school or private school. It was pretty close. But there was a noted difference between the kids who attended public school and those who were homeschooled. Vanderweel says, we found a lot of positive, beneficial outcomes of homeschooling. Well, like what? Well, their data showed that homeschool kids were more likely to volunteer, forgive others, possess a sense of mission and purpose, and have notably fewer lifetime sexual partners. Uh, they were 51% more likely to, to frequently attend religious services in their young adulthood. So this is a lot of really good things to say about 
homeschooling. So having said that, I thought I'd throw that out to you. But it wasn't the only thing that was found. This, to me, and they actually named the article after this finding here, that getting your kids to church matters more than getting them to the right school. Uh, Vanderweel found that religious service attendance, that is, getting them to worship services, makes a bigger difference than religious schooling. Religious service attendance has beneficial effects, says Vanderweel, across different school types and has a stronger effect than religious schooling. In other words, the kids who grew up attending church regularly rated far higher in overall well-being as young adults than those who went to religious school but did not go to religious services during their formative years. So again, the, the Christianity Today, when they went to headline this, uh, this whole study by Vanderweel, what they wanted to make sure you knew and that I knew, and I'm grateful for it. I, I mean, happy as I can be to know that when I've taken my kids to church, that matters more than the right school and right would be quote unquote school. I just, uh, I love that. And so one of the things you can definitely tell people when you're saying, Hey, let me, let me walk into their lives and evangelize them is one of the tremendous reasons why you ought to be coming to our church or any other church is because it makes a huge, huge difference, not only in your life, but, uh, in the life of your children, and I think that's a beautiful, beautiful message that we need to be uh, sharing one with another. So uh, another item here that I think is also quite fascinating, uh, there was a uh, an article written by a guy named Aaron Wren, and uh, he updated and expanded uh, an, an article that he had maybe on a podcast or something. He uh, He talked about this in their journal called First Things. And he talked about three worlds of evangelicalism. And so he says, within the world of American secularization, as America has become more secularized, he says there have been three distinct stages. One, the positive world. And that's what he calls pre-1994. And that's where society at large retains a mostly positive view of Christianity. So to be known as a good church-going man, for instance, it was, it was a great thing. It was, it, was, it was what you wanted to do. If you wanted to be seen as a good guy in your community, you wanted to be seen in church. So publicly being a Christian was a status enhancer pre-1994. Christian moral norms were the basic norms of society, and violating them you know, could bring some pretty negative consequences, particularly to your own reputation. Now, that was positive world pre-1994. Then there was the neutral world, and that's between the years 1994 and 2014. And what Wren says was there was a neutral stance toward Christianity. Christianity no longer had, has privileged status, but it's not disfavored. Being publicly known as a Christian, really no positive or negative impact on your social status. It's a valid option. Christianity is a valid option within a pluralistic public square. Uh, Christian moral norms retain some residual effect, but it's a neutral world. So positive world, pre-1994. Neutral world, 1994 to 2014, and you know what comes next. 2014 to the present, we're talking about negative world. Society has come to have a negative view of Christianity. 
Being known as a Christian is a social negative, particularly in the elite domains of society. Christian morality is expressly repudiated and seen as a threat, a threat to the public good and the new public moral order. Subscribing to Christian moral views or violating the secular moral order brings negative consequences. Now, you could argue with all of this. You don't have to believe this. But nonetheless, I find it very interesting. Aaron Wren says, positive world pre-1994, a positive view of the world, of America in particular, to Christianity. Neutral world, 1994 to 2014, we sort of morphed out of positive and went to neutral territory, but negative in the year 2014 to the present day. And I, I don't know, there's a couple things that kind of strike me as interesting. One is how fast that happened. How did we go from positive world, 1994, to negative world in 2014? How fast that happened? I mean, incredibly fast. Two decades, bam, bam. And that ought to give rise within us to some degree of mournfulness. But then I started thinking about it this way. Wait a minute. Early Christianity, we're talking about Acts 2 and the years, particularly the 30, 40, 50 years thereafter. You know what that was? That was negative world Christianity. In other words, society had a negative view of the Jesus movement in the early church. Actually, much more negative than America has currently towards Christianity and towards the church. Uh, In those early years, being a Christian was a social negative, particularly, particularly in the elite domains of society. There's no question about that. And it wasn't just a viewed as a social negative. The elite were hostile, absolutely and utterly hostile towards Christianity. Christian morality was expressly repudiated, and it was indeed seen as a threat to the public good, which is why you have folks like Nero doing everything he can to try to squelch the deal. Uh, And so what did they do? Uh, How did the early church deal with all of this? And I got to tell you, the more I study it, the more I'm beginning to think this. With tremendous winsomeness and pluck. (laughs) Winsomeness by, by basically saying, listen, we know what we are. Jesus called us salt and Jesus called us light. And so it's up to us to do what we need to do to be salt, to be light, and to make sure that we're running to the sound of the pain. So just like Jesus did when he came, he, in Matthew it says he got disciples together and then he immediately started going to the fringes, to the pain, to the untouchables of his culture, and healed them, loved them, touched them. And the world saw that, and it, it didn't save Jesus from the cross, for crying out loud. They still wanted to put him on a cross. But people started noticing it wasn't just Jesus. It was his followers for hundreds of years thereafter. And boy, did it ever make a difference. Now, I, I ran into a quote uh, by John Stott. It, uh, it has a... a preaching tape that's out there where he says this, and I just love it. And by the way, he's from England. So John Stott, this great, great 
theologian of the 20th century said this. You know, and he's talking to Americans, you, you, know, you know what your country's like. I'm a visitor, and I wouldn't presume to speak about America, but I know what Great Britain is like. I know something about the growing dishonesty, corruption, immorality, violence, pornography, the diminishing respect for human life, and the increase in abortion. Whose fault is it? And Stott says, let me put it like this. If the house is dark at night, there's no sense in blaming the house. That's just what happens when the sun goes down. The question is, where's the light? If the meat goes bad, there's no sense in blaming the meat. I mean, that, that's what happens when bacteria are allowed to breed unchecked. The question to ask is, where's the salt? So if society becomes corrupt like a dark night or stinking fish, there's no sense in blaming society. That's what happens when fallen human society is left to itself and human evil is unrestrained and unchecked. The question to ask is, where's the church? And so when you have a corrupt culture in uh, early Christianity, they didn't bellyache and gripe and moan and groan and uh, wonder where, where are our religious rights? Where's our religious freedom? What they did, not that I don't think those are things we should be talking about, but what they did was say, hey, we're salt. We're light. Let's go have the effect that Jesus wanted us to have. And it had to be quiet or they'd get killed for it. But nonetheless, quietly, sometimes unobtrusively, sometimes almost in secret, they continued to do what was so precious and became precious in the sight of those who were watching to see what would happen when those Christians were bumped. And boy, did they ever get bumped, particularly in that first century. Did they ever get bumped? And what they did when they got bumped was they didn't spill out with themselves or spill out with their anger or spill out with their attitude. They spilled out Jesus. Uh, the old proverb goes, whatever you're filled to the brim with spills out when you are bumped. And I believe it. Our job, y'all in a world that views us negatively, this is to spill out with Jesus when we're bumped. And in coming years, we're going to get bumped more and more. Hey, one of the sponsors of our program today is Teleos Press. Lots of really good books at teleospress.com. Go check it out. And a good many of my books are up at teleospress.com. And the newest one is called The Five method of discipleship. This thing is selling like hotcakes. People are loving these five questions that will change your life. Apply them to a discipleship group, meet with that discipleship group, and then tell that discipleship group, hey, take those questions and start your own discipleship group. And pretty soon you've got a multiplying movement on your hands. I highly recommend to you the 5Q method of discipleship, but you can find that at either amazon.com or go to teleospress.com. And at teleospress, you get a lot of other books that we've put out. Teleos, by the way, is the Greek word for whole, complete, and perfect. Now, I don't know why we started a press with such a difficult spelled name, but here we go. Teleos is spelled T-E-L-E-I-O-S. 
T-E-L-E-I-O-S. So go to telehousepress.com for a lot of wonderful volumes, including the 5Q method of discipleship, which, by the way, is going to teach you how to be a more serious disciple maker for Jesus. Check it out, telehousepress.com. Okay, so I promised you at the beginning of the program that we would do something with Genesis in this broadcast, and we're going to do it right now. And I'm delighted to have in a good friend of mine and my president, president of Wesley Biblical Seminary, Matt Ayers. Matt spent 13 years down in Haiti and was president of Emmaus University there. Uh, before he came to Wesley Biblical Seminary, we're just as thrilled as we can be to have him here. And uh, welcome to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast there, Matt. Thank you. And greetings to listeners. Great to be here. Listen, what we're going to do, this is the brand new thing. We're going to do an executive summary of every book of the Bible mm. for discipleship. Wonderful. So we're starting off with executive summary of Genesis. And I can think of no better person to have here than you for this topic. By the way, you'll probably be coming for other episodes as well, but for sure the Psalms. For sure the Psalms. You love the Psalms. And well, that one's easy. Pray and praise a lot. <laughs> teach your disciples to pray and praise a lot. Okay, right now we're in Genesis. Genesis, right. Rain, rain yourself in and get back to the first book. Uh, executive summary of Genesis for discipleship. I'm going to keep you to just five points. I know you'd love to make 15, but I'm just going to keep you to five. So the executive summary in this session is going to be five points across all the books of the Bible. First up with Genesis. So... Discipleship point one from Genesis. Discipleship point one from Genesis for Genesis is the sovereignty of God slash the providence of God. So the book of Genesis, in my opinion, the theological center is God's sovereignty is all powerful. This is the key. From Genesis 1, you know, he speaks creation to existence without any resistance whatsoever, which is diametrically opposed to ancient Near Eastern myths. It's contemporary literature to Genesis. There's always fighting and warring going on in those stories, not in Genesis. There's no other competing deities. There's no conflicting wills. God speaks, and it's done. Uh, and so we have sovereignty from the first chapter all the way to the last chapter, where in Genesis 50, verse 19, uh, through Joseph, um, the, the statement is made, uh, all of this man has intended for evil, but God has intended it for good. So he is so sovereign that he can turn the mess of human sin into something beautiful and fruitful, and his providence is at work. And for listeners who know the story of Genesis bringing the brothers back into reconciliation with Joseph, that through um, all the turmoil and betrayal and lying within the chosen family, which is interesting, that God brings it back around because he's sovereign and he's providential. So I would say that in making disciples and even in being disciples, we always have to keep in mind there's no such thing as happenstance, there's no such thing as coincidence, and that God has a providential sovereign plan at play. Uh, opportunities that come up in the mundane of the day-to-day -day or the ebb and flow of life, um, God is leveraging for shaping us into his image. Um, we see this, the providence of God and the sovereignty of God, not just in, you know, the climactic story of Abraham and his brothers, but even finding spouses for the sons. So mm -hmm. Abraham sends his servant to go and find a spouse for, for Isaac, and God's providence is at work there with the discussion with the well. So the executive summary of Genesis for discipleship, point number two. Yeah, point number two, pull up my notes here. Um, it's a process. Mm. It's a process, and this is um, clearly demonstrated and a major lesson in faith with the character of Abraham. And so the first thing God gives Abraham to do is hard. Um, 
leave your father's home, Genesis 12, get up and go. Uh, there's no doubt there's sacrifice there. It's, it's, it's difficult and it's hard, but he acts out of faith and God renders that faith righteous, specifically when he says, I'll make for a family for you. But you'll notice that as the story of Abraham progresses from 12 on, the more and more things that God puts in front of Abraham, the more difficult they are. So get up and go. Okay, that's tough. Leave my father's home, but I can do that. All right, now go and have a nation of children, although you're sterile. Well, that's impossible, but Abraham believed, rendering him righteous. Now I've given you a son, go and sacrifice him. Even more difficult, right? And so there is absolutely a progression of faith for Abraham. His faith is growing as he's walking with God. And so the process, we also see process at work in the story of Joseph. He starts out um, correct about his brothers and the vision bowing down to him, but very, very immature, naive, and, and arrogant about it. And through his difficulties and his struggles, he changes through the process. Joseph becomes a different person through the process. Abraham becomes a different person through the process. Even Sarah becomes a different person through the process. Jacob becomes a very different person through the So it's a process. You know, you're a you're an Old Testament man. You're specifically a Psalms man. You'll like this. I was a, with a discipleship group this morning in Psalms 26, where it's, I think, one of the most radical prayers in the Bible. Examine me, Lord. Put me to, to the, the test. test right. Then refine, which is kind of a fire word, refine my mind and my heart. Burn away everything that's not you. Right. Well, that's kind of what he's doing with Abraham, isn't it? Putting yeah. him to the test, examining right. him, and then trying to burn away things that don't need to be there. Right. That's it. And, and you know, the journey of sanctification and discipleship. And, and I think when it comes to it being a process and making disciples, um, covenant faithfulness is key in the sense that we can't expect full-blown maturity at the beginning, and we have to stick with the people that God has called us to make disciples with. Um, and covenant faithfulness is a key theme in Genesis 2, where God is faithful no matter what. So Abraham, well, God, you haven't given me kids yet. Uh, let me take up Hagar. Let me take this on my own. Actually, it's Sarah's idea. Uh, and then we're going to Egypt. I'm afraid that God can't provide for me here in Egypt. So let me let me spin a lie here to Pharaoh, the king, about who Sarah really is. And so, but regardless of Abraham's failures and regardless of Joseph's naivete and arrogance, God is faithful to his promises. And so as, as we're making disciples, we're going to deal with immaturity and arrogance and all those things, but we have to be faithful as God was faithful. And as, so I'm two perspectives in making disciples, but also in being disciples of Jesus, yes. his faithfulness. He loves us no matter what. Yeah, I would say the same thing when you're making disciples of your kids. It is a process. Oh, man, great example. Uh, you just, it just, it's a process. You got to hang in. And it doesn't stop at age 18. No, it doesn't. It's a process as long as you're alive. But it's covenant faithfulness. Yes. I, I'm in this no matter what. Executive Summary of Genesis, Discipleship Point number three, Matt Ayers, President of Wesley Biblical Seminary. So perfect transition, family is central. Hmm. Um, you know, God is, has a plan to redeem the world of sin. Um, sin is a key theological theme in Genesis, just like sovereignty and providence. Um, but so is uh, election. And God says, look, I'm going to redeem this thing. That is, uh, set it back to its original purposes, uh, and I'm going to do it through a family, hmm. not through a king. Uh, not through politicians, not through sports, <laughs> but through a family. He, he says, I'm going to grow a great big family. And it's in the context of family, the rest of the narrative of scripture and God's salvation plan plays out from Genesis all the way into the New Testament. I mean, 
even, you know, N.T. Wright would say, and I don't know that he's altogether correct about this, but I think there's something to it, that justification is about not so much, you know, a change of status from guilty to innocent. It's about being a member of the family. Wow. That when you become justified in Christ, yes, you're declared innocent, but more importantly, you're in. You're in the family now. Well, tremendous word to go along with that would be adopted, right? Adopted. That's Paul's, you know, metaphor for... Now, should... <clears throat> Christian families today be thinking about their family like that, that God can use my family to change the world? 100%. 100%. And I think, too, that we have to think about why that is. Like, why is it that family is the context? Is because we all know that family is the place in which uh, pure, raw character shaping information happens in terms of the intimacy of relationship. I mean, my wife knows me better than anyone on the planet, all my weaknesses and my strength. And that's the level at which discipleship has to happen. There's no pretense. There's no faking. There's just, there's no projected selves or so, you know, no emojicon Matt here, no Facebook version of Matt air. She knows the true me. Yeah. And that's the level on which discipleship happens. And that's what happens inside of families. If, if we can't get families right, we can't hope to get anything else right. All right, we're talking about uh, discipleship points from Genesis, point number four, Matt Ayers. God brings order to mess. Mm. Uh, so that is a great, you know, right out of that talking about family, is that um, God's not content with disorder. Uh, and when I say disorder, uh, and I, I don't just mean things are out of order. What I mean is sin is corrupted things, and there's dysfunction, and there's backbiting and betrayal and darkness. And, um, uh, you know, when... The, the whole fratricide thing, when uh, Cain kills Abel, before that, God says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and ready to devour you. Um, and it does devour him. Uh, God brings light to the darkness. He brings order to the disorder. This is Genesis 1. Uh, and that's the elements of nature. But he also brings order to the chaos of human behavior. Mm. Uh, humans are evil. That comes through loud and clear. Genesis 6, you know, every thought of every man was continually evil always, something like that, uh, saying, think, that's why he flooded the whole earth. That's a serious judgment. And guess what? God is sovereign enough to bring order to that. So all that to say, discipleship is messy, and God, um, he doesn't just get his hands messy, but he fixes it. He repairs it. He sets it back to right, and that's only what God can do. And probably an important lesson for us today in a messy world, and sometimes messy families, and lots of addictions, a lot of pain out there. Addictions are great, and that God could bring order out of my mess, out of my family's mess, out of my my nation's mess. Yep. Well, looks. I mean, the story of Joseph. It's horrible. I mean, his brothers are mad at him and jealous of him all at once. Remember, there's all different moms at work in this story. Joseph and Benjamin come from the favored mother. And then there's a couple from concubines. There's a couple of the 12 sons of, and, and, and they want to kill him. They want to kill their brother. And they say, well, the, you know, Reuben, the oldest brother, so let's not kill him. Let's just put him in a well. And no, no, let's sell him as a slave. I mean, can you, this is depra- depravity at its best. I mean, and this is family, they're brothers, they're blood, and they're betraying each other on this level. But here's the kicker. Through this family, God's going to redeem the world. And so if God can redeem the world through that mess, <laughs> you know, addiction's a big deal, but it's it's not too big for God. Oh, boy. That, that, that's And that's why we call it gospel. Good news. That's right. That's exactly right. No matter what my mess is, God can redeem it and change things through it. Yep. That's Beautiful it. stuff. All right. We're talking about Genesis and the discipleship points. Now, I'm sorry I've done this to you today because you know, you know Genesis like the back of your hand. You could go for a long time on discipleship points from Genesis, but I've held you down to five. 
And so I can't wait to hear your fifth. Fifth one. It's not what you think. Um, what do I mean by that? I think a lot of times for me, oh, is, oh, the, the point is it's not what you think. Yes. It's okay. not what you think. The point is Genesis teaches us that in making disciples, it's not going to turn out the way that you may think it'll turn out. Mm. Um, and I'm kind of goal oriented, achievement oriented, and I have an aim. Uh, and that's what drives me is that aim, that vision of, of something different. And, and, um, and there is an aim in Genesis, and that aim is family and land, that God will give Abraham a family and he will give him land. And that will be, you know, the, the, the first fruits of the new creation, of the redemption that God is working out through this people. But Genesis ends not in the promised land, but in Egypt. And this is not what we're anticipating when we start reading this book. And when we do discipleship, we're going to end, oftentimes we'll end somewhere that we haven't anticipated. Mm. Um, and it's, it, it, could not, it could look incomplete. It could look like God's not been faithful, but that's where Exodus picks up, which is the point that it doesn't end with us when we're making disciples. Like there is an end game, you know, of course, shaping people into the image of Christ. But oftentimes I think we'll end up somewhere with people. It's not where we think we would have ended up, but it doesn't mean it was wasted or that God's not at work. Yeah, I love that. So you get the end of Genesis, you're kind of like, what the heck? What? what? <laughs> yeah. This don't isn't stop, where we <laughs> don't stop. But if you're just just looking at Genesis. It's not a bad lesson for discipleship that it's incomplete. That's okay. Your time in this might be incomplete, but God's going to move on and keep doing extraordinary things. Well, and think about, yes. And think about Jesus. Like, okay, you've resurrected. Now there's the disciples misunderstanding still because Pentecost hasn't happened yet. Now it's time to bring the kingdom. He goes, actually, I'm leaving now. See ya. And he goes up into heaven, the ascension. And they're like, well, what now? <laughs> and then mm. more plans. And so it's not what you think. You may end up somewhere where you didn't think you'd end up with it. Dr. Matt Ayers, president at Wesley Biblical Seminary. Or, you know, I say WBS, world's best seminary. Ah, I like that. There you go. That'd be a a little bit bold, but (laughs) we are an awful good seminary. I guarantee you that. Yep. Um, And so thank you. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. It means a lot that you're here. All right, my friends, it's a wrap. It's been an honor to have you listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship broadcast with Matt Friedemann. I want you to check out our Facebook page, Life Changing Discipleship, and check out our books at Amazon.com. Type in Matt Friedemann and go see what's offered. Also remember, teleospress.com. And always, always tell others about our podcast. And remember, my wife thanks you, my daughter thanks you, my sons and their wives thank you. And I can assure you that I thank you for listening to Life Changing Discipleship today. Love God, live clean, keep the faith, make disciples, and God bless you, dear friends. We'll see you back here real soon. Mm-hmm.